Oregon Behavior Consultation is a state-approved behavior consultation company in Oregon. Nate Sheets is not a therapist, and you should always check with your child's therapist or team before implementing any suggestions or ideas that you get from this podcast. Everyone is different, and so not all suggestions will work or be appropriate for everyone. Welcome to It's a Brain Thing, a podcast where we explore the various aspects of life for people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and the people who support them. We're broadcasting from Salem, Oregon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jill Snell. Heyo! Hi! So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about different ways that we can educate people, including our kids, or um, if we're working with an adult with FASD, how to educate them on what FASD is, as well as how to educate other people in their life. So maybe professionals and uh, extended family members. This is a big issue that people frequently ask me about and just how do we get people to understand? So as we go through this podcast, these are just some things that me and Jill thought of, but if you have any suggestions that you wanna share with us, please do so. You can share it on our Facebook page um, and you can just contact us through our website, organbehavior.com. And so, yeah, we want to hear other ideas because this will not be a one podcast kind of conversation. This will be something that we explore a lot. Um, Why don't we start with you, Jill? What are some ways or some helpful things that you keep in mind when it comes to talking about FASD with your daughter or other people? Nate. I'm like beyond excited about this. So uh, feel free to jump in whenever I'm going on my rants. But so about 12 years ago, (laughs) don't worry, it won't be super, super long. About 12 years ago, I started and ran a nonprofit organization uh, here in Oregon that focused on social enrichment for adults with developmental disabilities. What we did is that we took um, outgoing seniors from high school and even any 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 year after high school as into adulthood, um, and we brought them in on as clients, and we helped them get planted into society with social groups, with working groups, with volunteerism, with uh, with hobbies and activities for them, and um, we started building a social world for them in in real life beyond the school walls. What I started to see over and over again, particularly with my higher functioning or my um, adults with developmental disabilities that were invisible, like fetal alcohol, was that they had spent their entire life um, not sharing what their brain barriers were and not being empowered of what their brain barriers were. But there was almost a shame. There was a shame to it. So when we were trying to um, bring enrichment to their life and plug them in and figure out who they were and find out their interests, find out their goals, their passions. In this particular group of individuals, what we kept running into was that they hadn't really thought about what their goals were. They hadn't thought about what they were good at. They hadn't thought about um, or made a plan for their careers. They had been so beat down for so many years, trying so hard to stick their round pole, their round peg into a square world that they had, they ha- they didn't have any connections to their communities on an emotional and a practical level. So a few years later, we adopt our oldest daughter and who has fetal alcohol. Um, there was one thing I knew I was going to do different with her is that I was going to, from the beginning, I was going to let her know what her bar- brain barriers were, 
share with her her labels and then empower her and encourage her to go out there in her world and name it to the world and be proud of the brain she was born with and be proud of the barriers she was born with and just own it and not be afraid to share it and not be ashamed of it. Um, so that is, that's my little pitch there, you guys, is that um, when we don't talk about labels, when we don't talk about disabilities, when we try so hard to be PC and to, you know, uh, elevate people with disabilities and throw them in our, to our community, but we forget to include a roadmap into an individual, just like any individual deserves to have a roadmap to who they are and how they're going to impact our world. When we don't give them that power, we take so much away from their self-worth and their yeah. their self-belief of who they are and how they can impact the community in a positive manner. Yeah. And this is just kind of an extension of two other concepts that we've hit on. One is the neurobehavior model, which we had in a previous podcast. That's this idea that behaviors are directly related to brain things. And oftentimes with fetal alcohol or other developmental disabilities or just for kids, the issue is not having certain skills. And there's a lot of other things too. And so giving the person themselves the language that they need. And we're yes. going to, we're going to give you guys some ideas for that in a few minutes, but, and also just also the idea of neurodiversity, which is a much larger subject, but this idea that there is a correct way to be a human, it is, steeped in our culture. We call it ableism. And this can be both with physical uh, disabilities, but neurodiversity is talking about developmental disabilities. And so what we want to do is be okay with people for who they are. So an autistic person, there's nothing wrong with being autistic. In fact, we wouldn't be sitting in front of these microphones if we didn't have autistic people in the human population. And with fetal alcohol, like there are strengths that can come with this neurology. And so emphasizing those and then educating. And one reason why I think many of the people in your program, as well as me growing up, you know, there is a literal separation or there was, and it's getting a little bit better. But for a couple hundred years in our country, we sent people to institutions. So we physically separated them. And now that we don't physically separate them, that doesn't mean that the, the mental separation has gone. So I remember growing up and, you know, they were always in different kids with, with disabilities were always in separate classrooms. If you asked, it was kind of, you were given a none of your business kind of, you know, response. There was very little inclusion. And while some of that in some areas is improving, um, you know, we're not, we're just not, we're not talking with either them or their peers about what their needs are because there is so much stigma. Um, so, one thing that you did with your daughter, and we're actually going to be creating a whole other episode mostly based around this idea of a river illustration, um, but it, it allow, it's, a way, it's a visual way to have the, the conversations that we always talk about called proactive conversations to help visualize what brain barriers are, and then to also provide visual tools that both the person who has the barriers as well as the person supporting them can look at to say, and then as the barriers are happening, okay, here's what I need to do right now for this. Sure. Um, so we're going to, we're going to talk about that specific example, but tell us a little bit more about name it to tame it and how you use that idea, not only with your daughter, but then as you guys navigate the community. Well, I think that there's, there's, um, a few tiers to that. I think the first place is making our, our kids feel safe and enough in the house that they live in. So in our house, we talk all the time about brain barriers or body, body barriers. And every human has them. Every human uh, learns in different capacities, remembers in dis different capacities, eats food differently, has allergies, has diseases, have an organ that doesn't work, have a toe that's all screwed up. 
I mean, there's so many differences. And by naming them in your own family aspect and going through those lists and cataloging those lists, you normalize that it's okay to be different. So our middle daughter has a really gnarly autoimmune disease where she's allergic to half the world. Our youngest son, he's got quite a little temper, which is a which is a barrier. It's a harder to gain control over that. I have ADHD horrifically, and I have um, anxiety really intense. My husband has ADHD. There's In our family, every single person has a brain boo-boo or a body boo-boo that we all have to adapt with and we have to uh, own and we have to get through because if we don't name them, if we don't acknowledge what our barriers are, there's no way then to make a plan of how to make that good for us. Mm-hmm. ADHD growing up, um, I felt stupid. I barely graduated high school. I was a class clown only because I was so insecure that everything was going over my head. It wasn't until college that I realized that I was smart and that I was capable. And I wish someone would have just told me back in the day, didn't just name that I had ADHD, which they did, but actually taught me what that meant for my brain and how I actually had control over that. And I had the ability to create new neuropathways for myself and new ways of learning for myself that were just as good as the typical boxed in education system. And Mm -hmm. um, so I use that with, with the kids. On the same front, once you get out of your home and you enter the community, it's a lot um, scarier of a world for people to identify boo-boos and barriers. I think our country in particular, the United States, and this could be the fact around the world, but um, we're very judgmental communities and we have very um, closed-minded ideals of what's acceptable or what's okay. Knowing that, um, arming my children um, with that empowerment of their labels comes with me being okay with my own and sharing my own to my friends, with our community, on a podcast, you know, talking about that freely really enables them to see that here's mom, she's still standing, she can still do these things, she can still be who she is, and she can be vulnerable in her own barriers as well. Something that our um, oldest runs into all the time at school is um, because of her invisible disability, she doesn't get empathy or understanding of her brain differences with her mm-hmm. peers. Which we should mention, yeah. the majority of people with an FASD or a suspected FASD do not have any kind of outward appearance of the yeah, disability. For sure. And yeah. in fact, she is a beautiful, articulate young lady. And so when you have a conversation with her, all of a sudden your expectations of what she's able to do or function as is completely different than what you're going to get back in return. And when her peers see this, it kind of flips everything they know and that they have been taught as individual, as children, um, it flips it on, on its head and they don't know what to do with her. And most of the time they exclude her because they yeah. don't know what to do with her. Because they, they have the same interpretations that their parents would likely exactly. have. Because that's, we, we raise children to believe that. Right. Um, right. And he, but... You know, you've mentioned a few times, I think you were at the airport once, she was having difficulty. Yeah. And you just kind of announced to everybody, this is autism and fetal alcohol. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I, when you say name, when you say name it to tame it. Literally. That's what I'm thinking of. Because in that moment, you give people that information. Right. And at least most of them will suddenly become a lot more understanding. Absolutely. Because they're witnessing a behavior that likely looks intentional or bratty or spoiled, but it's the result of a a bunch of things, including, you know, disability. And so as soon as you give that information to people, things completely change and people become a little bit more flexible, more understanding, more encouraging, more encouraging. Yeah. 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 When she was having, it was, we were flying to Pittsburgh on the way home, every single transition on airplane, she was having this massive, horrific meltdown. 
And um, at first it was stare after stare and people were like looking, they were like grabbing their bags, walking away. As soon as I literally announced, this is fetal alcohol and autism, like, because of course I was really upset by, because our kids can feel that. They can feel how they are being ostracized by the community. Even when they're in the midst of a meltdown, they can feel that. And particularly people with fetal alcohol. Yes. They can be to a certain extent still aware because for most of them fitting in socially is somewhat so important. Yeah, yeah so critical um but so once we did that once she calmed down every single plane ride that this happened she had one if not two or three people coming up to her on the plane once she, she was calm and telling her how proud they were of her mm-hmm. how they really thought she handled herself beautifully they were encouraging jake and i about how calm we stayed and that creates a community and a world that up- uplifts us and allows us to get through the hard times and not feel that judgment and so that we can actually grow and that lessens our anxiety, right? When we know we're going to be accepted even after a meltdown, people are still going to love us and they're still going to see us. And I think that's critical for allowing children to develop who they're meant to be. Um, another way that we combat this with her peers is that I either talk – when she's struggling with a particular peer, I either um, – talk to their parents or I write a letter to the community which um, a school or a teacher will hand out um, and this is with our daughter's permission um, and if there ever becomes a day where she doesn't want to share it then that will be her choice but up till now she's been okay sharing it mm-hmm. which I'm really proud of her for but she um, we let them know what her barriers are we let them know what works what doesn't work we let the, we let them know that just because there are the, these barriers she also comes to the table with this extraordinarily long list of wonderful friendship tools and mm-hmm. and loyalties and um and we we educate them on what is going on in her brain so when she reacts in a not typical manner they can actually choose their empathy and i think the more we teach our children about those brain diversities you were talking about the neurodiversity neurodiversity which mm-hmm. was i mean that that was just beautifully said um i think the the more we can make our kids that are not typically developing that are not developing typically neurologically um to be okay in that different space yeah so those are just some of the ways that we that we announce to our world and just a few things i want to add just something to be mindful of too is just i mean everybody's different and every family's different so the words you use are kind of based on that but even you want to try to avoid certain phrases like broken Mm -hmm. or you know even brain boo-boo you know, if, if we're talking maybe about with little kids and they just need something really clear, that right. could be okay. But just the issue to me is not that you are broken or not that there's something wrong, but that you are different. Mm-hmm. And there are supports that we can use, just like somebody who has who who can't walk might benefit from a wheelchair. Well, somebody who has high anxiety is going to benefit from certain strengths. So just something to keep in mind that we don't necessarily want to frame everything. And like you said, within that letter that you might send to fa- to parents of your um, kids' friends, you know, emphasizing the strengths. Absolutely. And, and also being really practical. So if, if your kiddo is going to be hanging out with a neighbor kid and you're preparing something for their parents, you, you want to tell them what the issues are, but then also give them really clear, practical, here's what you need to do. If there's an issue, give me a call. Right. If there's an issue say, why don't you take a few minutes to think about that? You know, whatever strategies work for you, give them something practical. And we've had an episode before on how to talk about fa- how to talk about FASD with family members, because that can be difficult, especially when we're centered around holidays like Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. And, you know, people go in with expectations of here's how this is going to go. And even though 
you know, kids might have challenging behaviors, once things start to deviate from that, then people's anxieties go up. So for example, I recently officiated my sister's wedding and my nephew was having challenging behaviors throughout the whole thing. Well, for me, it's no big deal because, you know, I'm constantly used to adjusting my expectations. And that's just, there was, in my mind, there's nothing I can do about it. I have to do, I have to officiate the wedding and everybody was fine. But in certain scenarios that could have stressed somebody out because if, you know, if it's a relative or whoever, they're going in there thinking this is going to be the perfect wedding. Here are my expectations. And then the challenging behaviors start to stress that out. Likewise with Christmas. You know, you if you want to take your kiddo to the extended families for Christmas, but their expectation is they're going to sit still and be quiet and we're going to do one present at a time, that's probably an unreasonable expectation. So part of what we're talking about is how do we make the make the plans to be successful and communicate the needs to all of these people so writing a letter visualizing but in any case you have to be proactive you can't for example show up to christmas and then start to do all of your planning both with your kid and with your relatives it has to be done beforehand my sister who i spoke about before she um her brain is similar to our oldest brain um just not as impacted but she has a need to plan any holiday or birthday months in advance. And she, as a kid, I would be like, it's July. Let's not talk about what we're going to buy each other for Christmas. And now that I understand why she did that, she was making a plan. She was getting her little brain ready for what was to come. And now as an adult, she still does that um, for anything that we do. And um, I get it now, so it's no big deal. But what's actually been really beautiful about that is that um, because she is so proactive about making this plan ahead of time, it's made me really good about talking with her about any family function that we have. And we talk about the details that I don't even think are going to be necessary. But if my sister is worrying about that, then I know probably so is my child. And so we talk these things out. We have a plan. And then the day of, we just know that we have to be flexible with each other and work mm-hmm. with each other. But that's been the biggest gift is if, to be able to talk and pre-plan and thank goodness for my sister and her brain barrier for needing that because she's taught me so much with doing that. But um, but I think that that's a really critical piece is being able to surround yourself with people who are willing to make those plans and then show the flexibility the day of. Yeah. There's been a situation in my family where um, – I have had to make some boundaries with some people that I love, I genuinely love, and I miss terribly as a as an adult, as a adult connection. But it wasn't a safe environment, or it wasn't a healthy environment um, for for our oldest. And no matter how hard I tried to teach or to educate or to interject, um, the more I would do so, the more I would be labeled as controlling, as a mm-hmm. micromanager, um, as a not so nice word, and it's became clear that if I didn't make the choice to have a, a boundary there and not um, socialize with this person anymore, that it was going to be a detriment not only to um, our daughter, but to myself. And when you're raising someone that has a brain barrier that are pretty significant, um, you have to leave fuel, emotional fuel in your bank to do that well. And you cannot be around people who just can't mm-hmm. get it, um, whether they can't or they won't. Sometimes you just have to walk walk away with love. Yeah. I mean, and so people will respond differently. Some people you have the conversation with and they're enthusiastic to learn. Yeah. Other people are confused about certain points, but if you give them just do this when this happens, right. they'll right. do that. Right. And that's great. Other people struggle, but they're still open, but they're just having a really hard time 
getting it and it might take some time. And so you're going to need the practical suggestions and some reminders. Um, and then you're going to have, you're going to have the people who for a variety of reasons just are not receptive. And so you have to make that decision. Is this stressor going to work for my kid and for me when mm -hmm. we interact with this person? And sometimes the answer is no. Yeah. And I've seen, I mean, I've worked with parents all the time because, you know, they're always telling me about the different relationships in their life. And, you know, many people are like, man, I wish I would have cut that off six months earlier, mm -hmm. you know, but, but we, we want to make things work. We think, oh, if I can just get, you know, if I can hold off a little bit longer, eventually, you know, uncle Joe or whoever is going to get it. And then it doesn't happen and it creates drama or situations that are distressful. And so, and of course, oftentimes when we have that family member or person the blame goes right back to our kid. So yeah, Uncle Joe is having his own ranting, challenging behaviors, yelling at our kids, um, even though we've tried to educate him. Right. And so obviously the fault is on the kid right. because they need to change their behaviors. And that's not really, you know, the neurobehavior way of looking at things. The right. issue is there are brain things going on and there has to be accommodations. And I agree. And I think also on that same note, there's an abstract way of shaming a kid too. You know, if you have um, an aunt or an uncle or a friend that's like, well, I'll take your two younger ones, but I can't take your oldest one because I don't know how to deal or I can't deal with it. In my family, it's a no-go. You either can handle all three. That doesn't have to be at the same time. But if you can handle my youngest, you're going to be able to handle my oldest. And if you can't handle my oldest, you're either going to learn or you're not going to have access to any of them. Because what that tells any kid, same with our middle child who has severe asthma. If they can't learn how to use an inhaler, I'm not going to let them go there. And then by, by and large, I'm not going to allow the other two to go there. So, And for me, that's just critical because the child that won't be included in that interpersonal relationship is being told that they are not okay and they are not good enough to be in that interpersonal relationship, and I think that that's a really, I think that's a really important thing to think about. Yeah, we we don't want to because they're getting that they're getting that exclusion enough. Yes, you know, they yes. Get, they get it from peers at school. Yes. They get it on the playground. Yes, coaches, you know. teammates. So as much as possible, we want to avoid that with yeah. our own families. Absolutely. So. Um, if anybody, by the way, has any maybe out of the ordinary strategies or just something that worked for you and communicating, you know, to a family member who is struggling to get it, please let us know. We want to hear that and share your ideas because um, everybody's different. So, we, you know, we can give some strategies, but if you have something that really worked for you, please tell us. On that same note um, about ways that it helps um... – people learn about your kiddo. We've done, we've given books to our family members. We've copied the same visual supports that we use in our home and we've taught people how to use them. We give our binder the what works, what doesn't work. Um, we give the binders to people. Um, and Diane Malbin also had a training video um, that we bought and we um, will give to people that are really committed to our family that want to learn and we let them watch that. Um, to really learn. So there are a lot of ways that you can, besides us just jammering um, to someone and begging someone to adapt or to kind of um, change their expectations or whatever the case is, that, that you can get the message across in someone else's voice. Now, when it comes to educating people with FASD about their own issues, there is often the concern that, you know, the person will take that and then use it as an excuse to get out of things. Now, from my perspective, this people tend to be a little bit over-concerned about this because 
you know, the whole idea, especially of things like collaborative problem solving, is that people will do well if they can. And when they can't, we need to examine why is that and not make the assumption that they just don't want to. So, but I have definitely seen situations where some clients, maybe not with fetal alcohol, but just with any disability, they might just say, whenever they're given a demand, I have autism, I can't do this or whatever. Or that's the information that I've been given. And so the way you handle that is you don't just talk about the negatives, but you give them the solutions that they need. Just because you have FASD, that doesn't mean you can't do the dishes. It means that you need to tell us what's going on. Maybe right now you need more time to think and transition. So here's how you advocate. Can I have five minutes before I do the dishes and see if that works? Or can I take a break from this? So providing those tools that we're not, we're not just providing the excuse, but it means here's, here's what the issue is and here is one way that this might help or one suggestion that may help or two ways, right? And of course, we have to keep it simple enough for each person individually. So it's not about giving them an excuse. And if it's manifesting in that, in that way for you, so you start to do the education and it's manifesting in this kind of excuse way, then you need to redirect the conversation a little bit you know, not in the moment, but a little bit later and say, you know, from now on, when we ask you to do this, saying that you have fetal alcohol isn't going to be your solution. We have to help you find a way to move forward. So focusing more on those solutions would be the first step. And I think that's where, when you were talking earlier about the river um, analogy, this is exactly where it started. Our oldest, uh, one day when, after she hit her brother um, and she had calmed down and, you know, we were downstairs talking about it. She goes, mom, I can't help it. I have fetal alcohol. And I was like, oh, no, you didn't, you yeah. know? And so I got my little piece of paper out and I was showing her this, this visual representation of what it takes for our brain to uh, make a decision, have a reaction and have an outcome. And I told her that regardless of our brain barriers or our body barriers, we still have to be a functioning person in our society. And so I think giving them the base that it's not just we don't just hit because it's wrong. We don't hit because it's illegal, because it hurts people, because it doesn't allow us to contribute to our community. Seeing this bigger picture, I think the more we talk about this bigger picture of why we teach our kids and why we parent our kids, it's because we're creating, you know, functioning humans. It's mm -hmm. not that we're trying to control them. It's not that we're trying to, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. We're just trying to teach them to be good humans. And so this visual, and we'll talk about it a lot more in detail in another podcast, but it just, it gives a visual, it's a river drawn down a page, and it's in a, a typical brain of a developing child, we, there's a, a few little logs or rocks, two or three, that are hard to navigate between when we're making a decision. Um, it's like a, it, it's like a neuroreceptor, right? Like we, it's, there's going to be some, some access points that are going to be sticky because they're developing. And then when you have a FASD brain, um, this river, you have a lot more. It's The river is just cluttered in debris. But at, you still have to get to the end of the river, right? You still have to get to the point where you're not hitting. And regardless if you're a typical brain or you're an FASD brain, you still have to not hit people. So the question is, how do we navigate a river that is cluttered with debris and barriers? How do we make better choices? And yeah. my... So so yeah. the visual will help yes. have this conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So we'll have a podcast about it. We'll provide the visuals to everybody. Yeah. It may not work necessarily for everybody. Um, it may also be helpful for non-FASD related issues. It is every, helpful. Everybody has yeah. different <laughs> barriers of different kinds. So yeah. it's a matter of identifying what the barriers are 
and potential solutions. And I think, yeah, and I think, you know, like the generalized idea of it is that it teaches children that regardless of what's going on in our brain or our bodies, that we have control over what seems um, what seems like a totally out of control scenario. We these kids didn't want to have uh, fetal alcohol when they were born. They didn't they didn't ask to have Down syndrome. They didn't ask to have food allergies. No kid wants to be born. No human wants to be born with these barriers, right? That just makes life hard. But what we do by showing that we have more control than we think over these hard stuff about life is that we empower children to look at our problems head on, to look at our struggles head on, and to challenge it and to realize that we can actually overcome it without adults always getting in the way, without these huge consequences. We actually can do this. And it's it's teaching children on a visual level that they they can do it. They yeah. can get over whatever life throws them at yeah. them. So essentially the visual is a tool to have a proactive conversation and just to make things clear. And that can help you later in situations because you're doing a lot of the thinking ahead of time, yeah. which is, of course, all that we, we always want to be doing that. Whenever we can address something ahead of time, that's what we want to do. So hopefully this visual, which we'll talk about next time, will um, be helpful to many of you guys for many different situations. Yes, so. for sure. So that was our very brief introduction to various ways that we can talk about fetal alcohol with both people who have it, with family members and professionals, um, and getting some tools in place and practical suggestions for them. If there's anything that you thought of that's worked for you, please let us know on our Facebook page, um, and we'll share your suggestions in future episodes. So once again, thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, please like our page on Facebook and follow us on all of our various social media endeavors. We'll put links to those in the show notes. And on behalf of me and Jill, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you so much, guys. Go get them. So good. Ha, ha, ha.